Hi there, it's Mark Bittman. Welcome to Food and Happy Holidays. We are here, as always, weekly, even during the holidays, and happy to have you here. Please feel free to reach out to us at food at markbitman.com. Markbitman.com is where you can find all things related to us. I'd also love it if you subscribe to our newsletter, The Bitman Project, at bitmanproject.com. And of course, it'd be great if you subscribe to this podcast, rated it, gave us lots of stars, etc., etc. Again, reach out to us at food at markbitman.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I am not typically, or I haven't been typically, a celebrator of Christmas, but these last few years, due to a bunch of different reasons, I've been partaking in the festivities increasingly. Last year, I even went out and cut down our own tree, which wasn't legal, but was definitely fun. I was joined by a couple of other younger male members of my family. And it's true that having kids, and especially little kids around, gives it all a different feeling. I'm not entirely wild about the present insanity, but I like the coziness, the togetherness, the fireplace, the food. And so we had to do a Christmas episode of food. We also luckily had two very obvious guests who made making this particular show an easy lift, thanks to their sparkling personalities and really unusual, even unique careers. So we're doing two separate interviews today, both of which are interesting in their own right. The first is culinary historian and judge on the Belgian version of the Great British Bake Off, I guess the Great Belgian Bake Off, is Regula Isawin, who also wrote the Downton Abbey Christmas Cookbook, which, as you can probably imagine, looks like quite the undertaking. The book came out in 2020, late 2020, which, as you remember, was a time we were mostly locked indoors. And when it did, I, a Downton fan, having just finished watching all six seasons and the first movie for the second time, thought about making a bunch of things from it and writing about it, but then I got lazy. So I'm really happy that now Kate's doing this fun interview with a dynamic and accomplished Ms. Izuin. We also have a recipe for you from that book, which I will give you later. 
Our second guest who Kate and Carrie talked to is Carolyn Robb, who was just 21 years old when she began working as royal chef to the Prince and Princess of Wales, Diana and Charles, that is. Prince William and Prince Harry as well, and um, she stayed at Kensington Palace for 11 years. I think you'll find her memories and passion for the job quite charming, as we all did. And Rob actually just published a book called Christmas at the Palace, filled with quirky history and a wide variety of holiday-centric recipes. I hope you enjoy this episode. Truly, we've got two spirited and fun conversations here. And one more thing, if you'll indulge me. If you are looking to find a perfect gift for a loved one, a food lover especially, or even a food lover who's not a loved one but someone you want to like you, or for yourself for that matter, we would suggest gifting a Bitman Project membership. And if you do before the end of December, you'll get 20% off. So that's just $40 for a year of trusted recipes, how-tos, and our thoughts on research and everything from which politicians are doing the best work on food policy to the best way to use your sourdough starter, how to use meat as more of a condiment and less of a meal, and so on and so on and so on. A year of me and Kate, and Holly, and Carrie, and Mike, and many more. So to do that, go to bitmanproject.com, click on the link for gift subscription, select the annual membership, choose a start date, and we will do the rest, even if you like delivering a personalized message from you to your giftees inbox on the start date you select. So remember, go to bitmanproject.com, click on the subscribe link, you will see the holiday special. Take it from there. Okay, on with the show. Thank you. Hi, Regula. It's so nice to be here with you today. Um, and you have nice be- to be on the show. Sorry. Oh, I have already. No, it's fine. It it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out that you have a gorgeous Christmas tree behind you. So it's nice to have that as background for our conversation. Indeed, indeed. It's all nice and festive here. So it's perfect for our conversation today. So you have a very cool resume. You are a culinary historian, and you're also a judge on the Belgian version of the Great British Bake Off. You wrote the Downton Abbey Christmas Cookbook, and you were one of the five judges of the Queen of England's Platinum Pudding Competition, along with Mary Berry and the royal chef, Mark Flanagan. Plus, you've written a number of absolutely gorgeous cooking books. I don't want to say cookbooks because I feel like they're not all recipe books. How did you get your start? Well, I think it all started with a, a massive passion for uh, British culture and British history. That's where it all started for me. And um, when I started writing and taking photographs, that is when people started seeing, for example, from the UK, like, oh my gosh, we have these beautiful things in our culture that we have forgotten about, which I was trying to uncover again on my blog. And pretty soon I got a column for Great British Food magazine to write about these things. And then I just went on writing my first cookbook, which is, like you say, it's not really a cookbook, but it does have recipes, Pride and Pudding, the history of British pudding, savory and sweet, which chronicles the history of British puddings from even before there was kitchens and there were uh, pots and pans. So it's a story. It's a history. It's a book you can read. It's a book you can look into with all the photographs that I've made myself as well of all historical dishes. And it's also a book you can cook from, but it's not just a cookbook. It is more than that. You can use it in different ways because I think that's important. For me, it's not just about the cooking. It is about all the stories connected to it, all the history connected to it, all the, all the legends that are often connected to food. That is something that interests me. And that is something that I want to share with my readers because there's, there are already so many recipe cookbooks. And for me, it is more about the background, why we eat this and why we eat that at a certain date, certain time of the year. Where does it come from? I agree. And I could be wrong, but I do think that it's sort of a lost art in a way. Not a lot of people are doing what you're doing, at least with such passion that you have for it. So it was really fun to look through the books and and learn some of the stories that are behind specifically British food, because British food, people tend to think 
or at least in America, people tend to think British food is so weird, which I don't know. I feel like it's an unfair reputation in a way. Um, it's true. And it's the same in Belgium. I had to really fight against that prejudice in Belgium and the Netherlands, especially for British food, because they all think it's all about fish and chips and fry ups, you know, English breakfast in the morning. But there's just so much more than that. And the food culture in Britain is so incredibly rich. And that's what I tried to show with my blog when I started out in 2010. So that was like really early days for blogs. And, and what I tried to do with the books I've written ever since to show that amazing, vast culture of food that, that Britain has. And, and, and even reminding British people often about that. Because if sometimes if I say to British people, okay, so I usually write about British food culture, they go like, oh, it's really thin books then. And I'm like, no, <laughs> even even British people started to believe that their food culture was crap, which is a <laughs> terrible thing. I mean, <laughs> and I think it also, I think it, it I also, I also think it really helps that I'm a foreigner looking in uh, because I, I might see things that British people take for granted. Like, for example, in my book, Oats in a North Wheat from the South, which was published in the US as the British baking book, there is an essay about tea and toast. So the toast is it's something quite iconically British, but rich people don't know because they take it for granted because they think everyone's like eating toast like they are. I mean, but it's not. It's even that tea culture as well. I mean, even like very tough looking builders and and uh you know those those really big fellas like boxers or something they have a cup of tea in belgium that would be considered not very macho sure to have a here cup too. of tea mm -hmm. yeah and in the uk it's like how it doesn't it doesn't matter how how tough or how big or how how, how tin or how cool you are everyone drinks a cup of tea Sure. I mean, I don't recall reading any British novel and not having tea mentioned in some part of it. It's always like, oh, should we sit down and have a cup of tea? If you read yeah. that in an American novel or anywhere else, <laughs> you would probably, it would stand out more because it's so unusual. But yeah, the tea thing, there's so many things like that. We uh, we interviewed Nigella Lawson for our Thanksgiving episode and she told us about bread sauce and we were like, I mean, I had never heard of bread sauce before. So that's another example of <laughs> just, I, I just love British food culture. I know. I was listening to that episode with Nigella Lawson and I was smiling all the way through it because I was thinking, yeah, that's that's it. I mean, if you haven't grown up, like she said, if, you, if you've not grown up with eating bread sauce, you think it's a really strange thing to do. But <laughs> if you've grown up with it, then, then it's something that you crave. It's like, I, I, I'm not that very fond of Brussels sprouts, but we have Brussels sprouts for Christmas dinner every year. And, and some, sometimes nobody even touches them, but they just have to be there because it's tradition. And this whole thing about nostalgia and tradition when it comes to food is a very powerful thing. And I, I just love to write about that because it, it is like writing about a fairy tale. It, it, but it is real life fairy tales about food and the legends that connected to it. And everyone's like this has these big feelings about food. And, and it, it is such a powerful thing. And I think that's quite extraordinary. It is. Because it's just food, right? It's just something that we just eat to stay alive. But not exactly. Because mm -hmm. we just get attached to things and food becomes something that reminds you suddenly of your grandmother, mm -hmm. of your auntie, of your best friends or your son or your daughter or anything or a, an occasion. Sometimes, some, sometimes if you smell food, you think about that time when you were a guest at dinner somewhere in a beautiful place where you were on holiday. I mean, that food can conjure up these types of memories and these types of deep feelings that must be magical i agree even and scent memories especially are so strange to me there's this one smell that just always reminds me of my grandma's soup and it's an, an amazing smell but sometimes i'll just get a whiff of it even just on the street or like in the hallway of an apartment building and it's like it just takes me right back to her kitchen it's so strange and powerful i just i love it Part of how I started learning about you and your work is because I was looking through the Downton Abbey Christmas cookbook, which you wrote. And it does, like it transports you back to this real time, but also a fictional time because 
It's not a real family. And you can almost feel them sitting there eating these totally elaborate dishes. And I cannot imagine how much research you must have put into that book. What are some of the ways in which the Christmas food traditions in the UK have changed uh, since the Downton story began in 1912? Well, that's really interesting that because the traditions haven't changed all that much because people and in Britain especially, they really do look at Christmas as being very important, very traditional, and tradition, uh, a tradition that needs to be kept alive. So many of the things that, that the Crawleys would have eaten w- would be still on the tables today. The only difference is that only privileged people would have eaten those dishes during the days of Downton Abbey, while today we almost all have access to meat and, and all of the, 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 the more fancy things like, you know, mince pies used to be only reserved for nobility. That's something we don't even think about today because you can walk into any type of supermarket in the UK and you can buy mince pies really cheaply. It's mince pies for everyone today. <laughs> but in the, in the past, that would certainly not have been the case. The, the food of, of normal people would have been bland. But for today, we can all eat what the rich ate. And I think that's something we often just don't stop and think about. We don't realize how fortunate that we are. We don't realize how much wealth that we have on our plate. Even if we are not as wealthy, we still have incredibly rich food on our plates compared to people 200, 300, 400 years ago. That's how things change. That's how Society changes, how access to food changes, how the price of food changes, and it's changing again in the yes. current climate. So you, you have to wonder, like, how are things going to evolve with the cost of living crisis as it is now? And it's really interesting to see. And I wish I could just hop forwards 100 years and, and just see what happened to, to food and, and to food culture, because it continues to evolve. It's not static. So it is interesting. My father tells this story where they would be baking waffles in a waffle iron on the open fire and that it would be their television. They would be watching the batter being made. They would whisk it. They would wait until it was ready. They would see the waffles being made and they would help them, you know, taking the waffle out of the iron and put them on a stack. And then they would wait until they were all baked. And that was the evening activity. And when they ate the waffles, they were incredibly special. But his mother, who was, you know, they, as I said, they were quite poor. She saved up for one of the first electric waffle irons. And when that waffle iron arrived and waffles were on the table in, in a few few minutes because of the electric iron and the whole experience completely collapsed because it, wasn't, it was no longer an evening activity to bake the waffles and to see all of that be part of the whole uh, process of making the baking the making the batter and having it rested and and then assisting in baking the waffles they no longer watched even the batter being made they didn't care because this this one thing missing which was the fact that if waffles were being made it was a family activity something to do together also something to stay warm together and then there was electrics and the electric waffle iron completely replace that whole experience. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. How how we eat evolves and all the different like modern equipment that we have makes food evolve. And that's something that we also see with, with, with Christmas dishes, basically. You must come across so many stories like that personally and in your research where things just evolve in a way that can be a little bit heartbreaking because that's just the way evolution works right as we get more high tech but that's exactly i don't like that's a sad story though Ah, (laughs) but that's the thing that's why that's why i fell in love with britain and british culture because in in britain people really really keep hold of of these traditions (laughs) yes it's very personal to them and if i compare it to my own country belgium christmas traditions they are very thinly spread 
I mean, we we usually do those, um, you know, those little pans with little tiny meats, things mm-hmm. like that. So those easy kind of things, or or someone gets catering in, but nobody thinks about this creating this beautiful big turkey or big roast beef or you know it's 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 become more about creating a very easy dinner for a lot of people at christmas i did want to know in your writing of the downtown abbey christmas cookbook or any of your other books i would love to know what the strangest thing you uncovered has been that's a really hard question because <laughs> i don't find many things very strange <laughs> i mean i think it, it is and it, i think it's it's often the perception of historical food being really crazy strange and unappetizing and weird and but it isn't really that weird maybe the thing that i if you think about christmas found was strange but at the same time really interesting that it persevered is the custom of the 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 boar's head, which was a custom in medieval times, it was uh, a very popular pastime with nobility to hunt wild boar. Then the boar's head would be stuffed; it would be decorated with twigs and and gold leaf, and to look all fabulous. And then it would be brought into the the celebration accompanied by musicians <laughs> on a big like silver platter it would be this stuffed boar's head and and <laughs> you think this is this is like something incredibly medieval to do and it is but then if you look through british culinary history they didn't let go of it <laughs> i mean how incredibly strange it sounds and an incredibly medieval thing to do they they just kept they were like no we're not letting our board head go because even <laughs> even <laughs> on a picture of of queen victoria's christmas of 1889 there's this big photograph of a table full of christmas foods and what we can see on there is a stuffed boar's head <laughs> decorated and even the cookery books of that time still had recipes for stuffed boar's head. Now, I don't think, well, I kind of know that British people today do not stuff boar's head anymore, unless <laughs> if you are someone crazy like me or my friend, <laughs> Dr. Annie Gray, that, that, then you probably wouldn't have a stuffed boar's head on your table. So it, 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 the custom does, has finally waned. But they kept hold of it for pretty long. That's... Exactly what I was looking for. You don't. <laughs> I mean, it is. They are absolutely. I mean, it is. They even loved stuffed boar's head so much that one of the first Christmas carols was about stuffed boar's head. That's so British. It I really know. is. It's so British. I mean, it doesn't how surprise can you me. Say, exactly. How can you say that Britain doesn't have a food culture if you have stories like that? I mean, you, one might argue that they have the food culture. Do you have Christmas traditions in the UK that you're particularly fond of? Um, all of it, really. I mean, it, I, I think it's just so fabulous that it's basically if you if you want to know what an English or a British Christmas is all about, you need to read A Christmas Carol from Charles Dickens because the book was written at a time when Christmas traditions were waning. And because of him and a couple of other authors who were writing at that time and writing about Christmas, they gave the Christmas feast a boost again. And they gave people something that they much needed, which was basically kind of a, a manual. How do we celebrate Christmas? What do we eat? And it has been used for that ever since. Um, you could say that Charles Dickens saved Christmas in a way because <laughs> of that, because the book became so popular. Well, I love that. Charles Dickens saved Christmas. I think it sums up our conversation pretty nicely. Very cozy. And with that, I do want to ask you what's always our last question, which is, what did you have for dinner last night? We had this really busy day yesterday because we went to a fair and we were with a friend. So when we finally came home, we decided to uh, to make pizza. So we had we had pizza. We made pizza together. What kind? So, um, um, 
with little meatballs on top. Yum. <laughs> yeah. So I have this little pizza oven and um, it's been a massive thing in our house. Everyone loves coming and, and, and making pizzas, even, even my parents who are old and they still love it. Hopefully. So nice to talk to you. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. Your work is amazing. I'm just, I hope maybe oh, one day we can meet someday and have a cup of tea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a slice of toast with some butter on top. Yes, or pizza. That would be fabulous, wouldn't it? Or, or pizza. pizza. I mean, yeah. Pizza's always good. Pizza's always good. And we'll be back with the second of our two interviews for this podcast with Carol and Rob in just a moment. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. Less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? 
a tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to meet you. (laughs) So nice to meet you, Carrie, as always. Hello. Hi, Carrie. (laughs) Hi, nice to see you. So, Carolyn, we have you on here today to talk about your new cookbook, which is called Christmas at the Palace. And I was looking through it the other day, and it's full of quirky historical anecdotes, like poisonings, a gift of a hundred wheels of Parmesan, (laughs) stuff like that. I'm curious as to how you did the research to get these bits of gossip and which story is your favorite or which do you think is the most memorable? I worked with a brilliant food historian who's absolutely passionate about it. So I had a few ideas, but hers were a lot more gory and interesting than (laughs) than mine, certainly. Um, Yeah, and I I love the history and I love to be able to sort of tie that in with the food as well, which, um, because I think a cookbook should be more than just a a collection of recipes. Um, I certainly love reading cookbooks and always like to have sort of something a bit more to read than just the recipes, which is why I did that. Um, But yeah, I think, Probably Hampton Court is my favorite chapter with the, uh, yes, Henry VIII is always a very interesting character. <laughs> so I enjoyed all the, the, the history of the presents and the chocolate and the parmesan and, and all those different things. Can you be a little more specific about one of, one of the stories in there about Hampton Court? Oh, I guess, I guess the, the parmesan is, I'm a, I absolutely adore parmesan. Um, yeah and I love that and I I would be fascinated if I'd had time to have done more research into what um, British cheeses were around at that time I'm guessing it was the very beginnings of of cheddar cheese which is our most traditional cheese but yeah I I enjoyed that what was it it was that someone's it was someone sent him a hundred wheels of parmesan right yes that's right yeah which is unbelievable seems like quite a lot to me (laughs) It seems very expensive. (laughs) By horseback, probably, right? Or ship or... uh, Yeah, wow. And then what would they do with them? What would they do with them, I wonder? I was was thought about that as well. And one wheel of Parmesan lasts quite some time, doesn't it? I wouldn't have thought they'd have been eating a lot of Italian-style food where they would use Parmesan. So, yes, cheese and biscuits. (laughs) A lot of parties. Um. You were 21 when you began working as a royal chef to the Prince and Princess of Wales, that's Diana and Charles, and um, Prince William and Prince Harry, and you stayed at Kensington Palace for 11 years. How did you get, I mean, there was recently a story about a nanny getting a gig I saw in the New York Times. How do you get a job like that? Uh, I was very fortunate. The um, culinary school that I went to supplied chefs to the royal household all certainly to the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester. That was my first job at Kensington Palace with the royal family. So while I was there, a few of us were selected to go up for a job interview with the Gloucesters. And I got that job. And then Kensington Palace is, at that time, there were quite a few different families living there. So it was a little community within itself, really. And yes, got to know all the other chefs. And then Prince Charles and Princess Diana came for dinner with the Gloucesters and and everything fell into place really nicely for me. So I was incredibly fortunate. Prince Charles hadn't previously had any, had a female chef um, and thought it was time to have a female chef. So I was lucky I was in the right place at the right time. (laughs) Wow. What year was that? That was very forward thinking of him. 
It was. That was 1989 when I started with them. And yeah, he is is and has been forward thinking on so many things for so long. <laughs> he is. Actually, I'm going to ask you a question. And I think some people, probably a lot of people don't know this, but King Charles is known to be a passionate advocate for the environment and for good food specifically. So we were curious to know if that was evident back when you were working for him. Oh, it was hugely evident. Yep, it really was. Um, and I, so I, I was very young, obviously, when I started. And at that point, I remember learning about sustainability and traceability and food miles and eating with, with the seasons. And it wasn't something that other chefs really knew about or thought about at all. So I always felt incredibly lucky that as such a young chef, I, I learned about that. There was beautiful vegetable garden, high grove. So obviously there was a lot of fruit and vegetables there and everything was eaten. What was in season was eaten at the time. And again, that was something that I think people don't really think or certainly then didn't think about very much because strawberries and raspberries and asparagus and peas and all those wonderful summer fruit and vegetables are available year round. Didn't really think about it. Whereas Prince Charles at that time, he ate asparagus for those six weeks that asparagus was in season and it wasn't ever served at any other time of year. We wouldn't dare to buy asparagus or strawberries that were flown in from Kenya or at Christmas time. He ate with the seasons and he certainly practiced what he preached as well. And a, sort of part of my job as the chef was to find really interesting local suppliers. And so we had a local butter supplier and another one for cream and um, another one for cheese, another one for honey. Um, so he was amazing the way he supported all the lo little local suppliers. So all the different residences we went to, he had quite a long list of, of suppliers because he was so keen to support local and eat local as well. So it was very, very much a part of it. And it was fascinating. And uh, his was his 70th birthday a few years ago, and a documentary was made to sort of um, celebrate that. And one of the things that they showed in that was a clip of him making a speech in 1970 when he talked about um, the fact that we should stop using so many plastic bags because they were going to destroy the oceans. Um, and wow. I think at that time, every, everybody just thought he was completely mad or this overprivileged prince, but he's always been so incredibly passionate about it. I think it's been a frustrating time for him because people haven't really listened. But hopefully now, with the support of William, I think people are starting to take it more seriously. Wow, 1970. Yeah, a long time ago. That's so cool. I mean, yeah. I wonder what inspired him. That was a 1970s a long time ago. I I mean, I feel like we're also behind and people are just now starting to move forward in a real way and maybe 1970 was a very long time ago. <laughs> I guess we haven't talked about the holidays much, but this is so interesting. Um, it seems like holiday eating in the UK has the United Kingdom has a lot of food that overlaps with our Thanksgiving and Christmas traditions like turkey and stuffing and winter vegetables, gingerbread, marshmallows, and those star cookie trees. I, we don't have those, but what a terrific idea that is. <laughs> Smashed, rather mashed avocados. You know how you have so many interesting twists on them. Only like your presentation of these familiar foods are so much more lovely than ours. Can we talk a little bit about how visually you make the season special with food? Yeah, it is. It is def definitely has a flavor of its own um, that sets it apart from the rest of the year. And I think British food has it certainly has a reputation for being quite plain, quite simple. Um, so I think the contrast at Christmas time when people go overboard with decorating, lots of lovely colors, lots of, and I think particularly the flavors of the food as well, lots of warm flavors, lots of lovely um, spices in things like spices in sort of the gingerbread and the Christmas cakes and things like that. And yes, it is still quite traditional, but what I certainly what I tried to do in the book was just to give things a little diff, a, a bit of a twist. I mean, you have a very traditional um, sort of rich fruit Christmas cake, which I think in this day and age, a lot of people find quite heavy, which is why I suggested the little um, little ginger cakes instead. So I tried to make everything a little bit lighter. But the presentation is, is so important. And I think the two rules I have are keep it simple and have fun with it. You don't always have to follow every recipe to a tea. Use the ingredients that you've got in your larder or got in your refrigerator or garden. 
Um, and I'm definitely one for going and wandering around the garden and seeing what I can find. I love decorating things with fresh herbs and, yes, fresh flowers. Not that there are many of those in the middle of the winter here. When you did Christmas dinners and other holiday celebrations with the family, how were the menus decided? Did you collaborate with them or did you decide on your own? No, there was always collaboration um, whenever it was. We had a little menu book and wrote suggested menus in that. If I didn't see their Royal Highnesses, and then they would choose what they wanted from that. But generally, you could sort of more or less work out what it is they'd like. Certainly, because we were planning so many menus around what was in season and what was in the garden, that made it a lot simpler. And you knew what they liked and what they didn't like. Christmas time, we did, obviously, the run-up to Christmas. Uh, Christmas Day, I didn't ever work because they always went, um, they were stayed with Her Majesty the Queen and she hosted them. Um, so I was fortunate. I usually got Christmas Day off. But December was always a really busy month. It was a month when they worked very hard to sort of link up with all their charities and um, as patron of so many different organizations, they would always get together with them. So it was a very festive month. What were some of the go-to family dishes for not just holiday time, but 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 every day, but and specifically holiday time? Like what you mentioned seasonal things, but were the preparations simple or, you know, roasts or like, how did they eat? They all had their own favorites. But I think in England in the winter, a, a traditional roast always goes down well with everybody. And sort of bearing in mind the seasonality, it would be with lots of lovely roasted root vegetables, that kind of thing. Uh, we spent a lot of time preserving and freezing all the fruit and vegetables that were in the garden. Um, so we'd have frozen berries and frozen rhubarb and frozen apple. And so we could draw on those kind of things all the year round. So a traditional dessert for middle of the winter would probably be something like a blackberry and apple crumble served with some homemade vanilla ice cream with wonderful cream from the dairy at Windsor. So all the ingredients had their own characters as well. But yes, it, it tended to be quite simple. A lot of British food, but also French Provençal was, had quite an influence. King Charles certainly enjoyed, loved it, loves his fresh herbs. So that always played a big part in everything. Um, Princess Diana loved sort of lighter things, fish and chicken and, and salads. But it was fun. It was all part of the challenge to create, a, sort of create a meal with a, that worked for everybody, worked for the boys. William and Harry were quite small then. Uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of the job. And some of their favourites, as I say, it was in the winter it would definitely be the, the heavier, more wholesome, more traditional roasts, shepherd pie, shepherd's pies, um, sometimes a casserole, and then desserts would be tarts or crumbles, and usually a bit of ice cream on the side. It was never too cold for ice cream. One part of the job that I really loved was that everything was homemade and we did everything from scratch. I think if you're working in a hotel or a restaurant, um, time doesn't allow or budget doesn't allow for making your own puff pastry, making your own ice cream, making your own bread. But we did make all those things from scratch. So it was a, I love that part of the job. It sounds like there were tons of rewarding aspects to the job. Were there any, what were the challenges like? Um, it was a commitment. Um, you worked night, sort of worked every night and you worked at the weekends. Um, you traveled a lot which was fun, but also it meant you were sort of away from home. So um, I think some people found it quite challenging that it was uh, such a commitment on your time and you had to sort of live your life around their schedule and their itinerary. But I was young, I was single, I absolutely loved what I was doing, loved the excitement of traveling to all the different royal residences and just absolutely loved food and loved cooking for them because they were such such a wonderful family to cook for and they were so gracious and so grateful and so interested. And as a chef, you want to cook for someone who loves their food. And with Prince Charles, it was the whole package. It was not just the, the food on the plate, but it was the provenance of the ingredients and where they came from. So uh, for me, there wasn't really any challenge as such. I just loved it. It was, it was hard work, but it was a great team of people as well. And we all very much worked together as a team and supported one another. So that was really enjoyable too. But yes, it was a lot of a lot of everything, and it, and it was a bit of everything. So I enjoyed the organisational side as well because there were quite a lot of logistics. If you moved to a different house, you had to make sure that you had all the food there when you arrived, some of it you'd take with you, some of it you'd order ahead of time. So in that way, there was logistics. And then obviously bigger dinner parties, you had to organise that as well. So it was lovely, and it was a 
it was a lot of contrast as well. You could be just making, as you said, shepherd's pie, perhaps for William and Harry one day, or the next day you might be on the Royal Yacht Britannia in Hong Kong doing a banquet for 50 people. So it was a job of great contrasts, which I loved. Kept you on your toes. <laughs> Being a private chef is so fascinating to me because at, when I cook for myself, my family, if I like, I mean, I'm not bragging at all. I've just been cooking for a long time. I don't mess up all that often to a point where it's a, a huge fail. But if it if I do, then I just can get takeout. But if you're a private chef and you're cooking for a family that's relying <laughs> on you and it's your job, you're not getting takeout if you mess it up. <laughs> no. These are the things that I think about. <laughs> There's no pizza. No pizza, no pizza backup. But right. it's also all in the planning, I guess. And if you're doing a big dinner party, then you don't put a souffle on the menu. You make sure that you put something on that's fail-proof and <laughs> you learn that lesson pretty quickly. We just have one more question and that's the question that we ask everybody, which is, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, right. <laughs> um, last night had some pasta with homemade pesto. It's one of the girls, the things my girls most enjoy is homemade pesto. Lots of lovely basil and pine nuts and parmesan pasta with some roasted vegetables in it. And then baked apples afterwards. We've got two lovely apple trees in the garden and it's freezing cold. And my girls have both had a long day at school. So it's lovely to have a bake, put, put the apples in before I go and pick them up from school so that when they get back, they're ready. Baked apples and custard, real comfort food. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it smells amazing too. The smell yes, of baked apples. Yes. With some cinnamon and apricots and dates and things in the middle. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Well, thank you, Carolyn. This is going to be such a lovely um, Christmas episode and really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. Thank you so much. It was fun. Lovely speaking to you both. Take care. You too. Okay, I'm going to give you the Downton Abbey recipe for anchovy eclairs, which are, I mean, wonderful, but there's a bit of a cheat here, which is that you start with purchased puff pastry. And if you want to make your own puff pastry, needless to say, feel free. And we might do that over the holidays. But anyway, if you buy puff pastry, these are like the easiest thing in the world. And they are what the Brits call a savory, and they are a great one. So you will need flour for the work surface, about 10 ounces of puff pastry, best if it's made with butter, and thawed if it's frozen according to the package directions. 12 large or 24 small anchovy fillets in olive oil. I think we mostly see small. You're going to want 24. One egg yolk lightly beaten, that's for egg wash, and grated Gruyere cheese. Preheat the oven to 400 degrees and line a sheet pan with some parchment. Flour the work surface and roll out the puff pastry to about a quarter inch thick and cut out a rectangle about nine by eight, then cut that rectangle into 12 strips so that they're each about four by one and a half. Each of these is going to be an eclair. With the long side of each strip facing you, put each of these strips on the counter um, with the long side facing you, put an anchovy right in the middle, uh, leaving, well, whatever you can on each side, about a quarter of an inch, I guess, and then fold the top of the strip over the filet, um, enclosing it completely and crimp the edges securely closed with a fork. Then brush the top of each pastry with the egg wash and then sprinkle with a little of the Gruyere cheese. Move them carefully to the baking sheet, spacing them well apart and bake until they're puffed and golden, which is only about eight or 10 minutes. Serve hot or at room temperature, but they are better hot. The folding thing sounds more complicated than it is. Stick the filet in the middle, crimp the edges, brush with egg wash. These are really great. Enjoy them. Well, I think that was all kind of fun. I hope you do too. Thank you to Kate and to Carrie for hosting this week's episode. And as always, thanks to Kate for producing and to Davis Lloyd, our engineer, as always. Thank you to the fantastically knowledgeable Regula Izawin and Carolyn Robb for their efforts in making our holiday episode so festive and unusual. You can follow Regula on Instagram and Facebook at Miss Foodwise, M-I-S-S-F-O-O-D-W-I-S-E. And on Twitter at Regula Isuin, 
R-E-G-U-L-A-Y-S-E-W-I-J-N. The Downton Abbey Christmas Cookbook and Christmas at the Palace are both available now. Again, you can find us at markbitman.com or bitmanproject.com. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast. And we will see you next week when we will have somebody awesome. Thanks. Happy holidays to all. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.